You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's up, honorary Newfoundlanders? Welcome back to our fourth episode of Conversations from Away, a new podcast to encourage dialogue over social issues and topics that we don't speak on enough and are willing to get uncomfortable as a means to learn and grow together. My name is Aaron Michael Ray, and thank you for joining us for this episode. So as usual, we have some Come From Away tour family members join us in each episode. So with that being said, please welcome Marika Aubrey Shambly Ferguson and Isaac Alderson. Uh, so, would you all like to introduce yourselves and tell us what you do with the show? I'm Marika Aubrey, and I play Bev and others. Hi, I'm Shambly Ferguson. I play at Nick and others in the show. Hi, I'm Isaac Alderson. Uh, I'm one of the musicians. I play various wind instruments, uh, including whistles, uh, illin pipes, which is the Irish bagpipe and Irish flute. Uh, and I just sit on the side and play music during the show. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to first off say that you don't just sit on the side, okay? Isaac <laughs> plays, Isaac's being very humble, but he plays about 40 million instruments in the show, and he does all of them exceptionally well. So thank you, Isaac. We are also thrilled to welcome our two special guest panelists, Samuel Stein and Mancho Lopez. Uh, Samuel Stein is an urban geographer who is a housing policy analyst for the Community Service Society of New York. He focuses on the politics of urban planning and emphasizes on housing, labor, and real estate, real estate and gentrification in New York City. Sam is also a published author of his own book, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State. And we also have Mancha Lopez, a South Bronx-based activist and political scientist, board member of the Mott Havenport Morris Community Land Trust in the South Bronx, and the Cooper Square Company Land Trust in New York City's Lower East Side. He is a Mellon Foundation Curatorial Fellow in the Museum of the City of New York. And with all these amazing credentials, he has both brewed and drank his own beer for the past 25 years. I mean, that alone is very impressive to me. So thank you both so much for joining us today. On this week's episode, we will discuss housing discrimination and gentrification. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this with you all because if you're like me, you may not have known enough about this topic. So, you know, being on tour, you come across many different neighborhoods. And because you're an outsider and you don't always know the history of these neighborhoods or where they're going, but when it comes to gentrification, what does that word even mean? 
And I wanted to kick off this conversation with the definition of the word. So there are two definitions that I found uh, of gentrification. Thank you, Google. And the definition is as follows. The first definition says, the process whereby the character of a poor urban area is changed by wealthier people moving in, improving housing, and attracting new businesses, typically displacing current inhabitants in the process. And the other definition of gentrification is the process of making someone or something more refined, polite, or respectable. So when I look at this, I'm thinking, okay, wait, I, I'm confused because, you know, if we're talking about gentrification, it has a lot of weight to that word. And so I want to ask you all, um, and feel free, whoever wants to answer, um, I'll start by saying this. Does this mean gentrification is a good thing? And if gentrification pushes people of a certain economic class out for wealthier people to move in, why is it also defined as making something more refined, polite, or respectable? I mean, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is the phrase that the victors write history, right? So in, in that case, perhaps it's, it's the victors of the gentrification wars or battles or struggles that wrote that second definition. Um, whereas the first one is a little bit more reflective of um, both who benefits from the process and who it costs their home, their livelihood, their community. Yeah, I, I also think that uh, the question itself uh, is a little bit tricky because I believe it's, it's natural, only too natural for people to inquire uh, about these, these topics. At the same time, uh, the question somehow leads to this, oh, there are two sides to each issue, you know? And yeah, there are good things, but there are bad things. And I am like, no, it, it, for me, it's settled. Um, I think that when you listen to the famous uh, Spike Lee rant, <laughs> the, of two or three years ago that that someone came and, and just tried to itemize the the good good aspects of gentrification uh, I think that he gave a, a very excellent uh, retort to that like uh, the the bad things so much outweighed uh, the so-called good things that um, you know even asking how you frame the question is important let me put it that way Okay, okay. So, well then, well, let me, let me also ask this. Uh, what laws even allow this to happen in the first place? Like, what policies are in our government that make this possible? I, I am surprised that I ended up reading almost all of the color of law. And I think that the, the author uh, makes um, a really, really, really good case that, that these are very old dynamics um, in, in our country. Uh, I, I think that the author makes a, a very good case, a very European case, very politically heavy case, that uh, these uh, black, white identities, the, the, the dynamics of segregation, were actually in many cases uh, brought forth, like, you know, given birth by, by the state, by, by political powers, you know? that narrated them as such into laws, like the what he, he calls uh, the jure desegregation. And, and so I, I think that that kind of history is extremely important as a frame to really understand what we're going through now. 
I think I, I think that that's central because e even in terms of the politics of liberation, like sometimes people and communities might assume like, why is this happening to me? You know, uh, and it's like, no, 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 no. Don't take it personal, you know, be, be enraged by it and push back. But there is nothing wrong with you. This has been going on for a long time. And, and so that's, um, I think it's very, very important. So people don't, you know, uh, um yeah get down on 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 the whole situation yeah and and i think we can talk about like which laws in particular kind of enabled yes. uh, some of the dynamics but we can also think about what laws aren't there like we don't have a right to housing we don't have um what some philosophers call the right to the city which is the ability to sort of shape your place uh, because you contributed to it instead we have political processes that alienate a lot of residents from choices about what's going to be made where, uh, and who's going to be able to live where. So within that context of not having those political rights, um, Rothstein talks mostly about two sets of laws in the early to mid 20th century um, that made segregation um, not just sort of a, a commonplace uh, aspect of urban life, but really the law of the land. And specifically, those have to do with uh, redlining, um, or the rules that uh, the government uh, enforces around which mortgages they will support and which they will not, and in which areas they will uh, encourage home ownership and in which they will encourage disinvestment. And while there's a number of factors having to do with how old the buildings are and how urban versus suburban they are, more than anything else, it was race that was the determinant of which areas got investment and which areas got disinvestment. And then the other set of policies that uh, we talk about a lot is urban renewal, which is uh, the sets of policies that cleared out low-income neighborhoods from cities um, and often dispersed the populations uh, rather than you know, giving them space in what was built in those areas afterwards, whether that was public housing um, or in many cases, private housing or even just a highway. So that one-two punch of redlining followed by urban renewal really concretized um, segregation and made it seem like it was either natural or the way people just wanted to live rather than I would argue the combination of market forces as in the way people wanted to make money off of housing and policy that was uh, kind of reinforcing that by uh, legislating essentially or regulating segregation. And also I, I find it so depressing and, and perverse that that so many of these projects that that build uh, spatial uh, segregation like like they came dressed as as good projects as as things you know uh, in in the 1860s is the uh, homestead act and it's like free land and you're like yeah land should be free where is the land coming from who is excluded from that and then you have also uh, later on, you have the Housing Act of, of the 1930s. And it's like, yeah, the, the government is supporting, you know, these mortgages, insuring them. And so it's part of the New Deal. And you're like, hell yeah. And then who is excluded from that? The GI Bill. Oh, yeah. All these people came from defeating uh, the Nazis and the Japanese and the Axis. And so, yeah, they deserve support. Who, again, who is excluded? And so over and over and over and over, you see how 
some people, always the same, get black people, because it's like one of the things that, that he writes about, uh, get excluded from, from these goodies and, and from these uh, protections uh, that actually accrue wealth and, and really increase the, the, you know, the fundamental inequality in which the, the country was, was established. Yeah, and oh, I wanted I wanted to start off by saying uh, we have so in research for you know doing research for this episode and really getting into this topic, um, Isaac has recommended an amazing book called The Color of Law, um, and it is writ written by Richard Rothstein. And we've been basing a lot of our research on this book. So for those of you watching out there, if you ever hear us talking about this book, that, or when we're talking about the book and referencing the color of law, that's what we are getting at. Hey, honorary Newfoundlanders, thank you for listening. We're gonna take a really quick break and then we'll be right back. You know, Mancho, something that you pointed out was that Everything was very, when it came to, uh, when it comes to gentrification in general, like sometimes it's projected as a good thing. And I think that there are probably fair arguments to say that, you know, for people who are within the neighborhood might think it's a good thing if it doesn't affect them or if it doesn't displace them. But then at the same time, it's still bringing people in to also bring other people out in a sense. And so I think it's something that I, we've kind of talked about when planning for this is that while we were on tour, you know, we see, we're in so many cities all the time when we're on tour. And there are some cities that are safer than others. Um, and something that was, kind of pointed out to me, I remember at one point, was we were getting to one city and I just remember um, one of our, one of our people, one of the people on our team were saying that, you know, oh, you know, like this place is, um, you know, the theater is right next to this coffee shop or whatever. And they say, you know, this is, it's been recently gentrified. Like everything looks really great. It's super nice. And they, it was so projected as a good thing. And it, I guess what I want to ask, and I, what I want to ask is, is it actually a good thing? Like, is there, you know, like, it, for the people involved and for the people who are moving into certain neighborhoods, or is it just complete, or do we just have it backwards? We do have an, an unfortunate tendency to equate safety with, with whiteness. Um, I... Mancho, I also live in the South Bronx, um, and I've been here since 2005. <laughs> Great. Um, and uh, I I've heard so many times, uh, especially when I first moved in here, uh, a lot of people said to me, mainly white, uh, white friends of friends, said to me, you know, oh, I hear, I hear it's getting better up there. And, uh, you know, <laughs> um, or, you know, or don't worry, like it'll be better in 10 years, you know, and that's something that I always kind of have, uh, have bristled at because I've always been fine here, uh, you know, and I, I know it, it, there's a history in this area of uh, a lot of uh, violence related to drugs, poverty, all that stuff. Um, but, you know, that goes back quite a few decades. And I think that most people aren't judging it based on how it is currently. Um, 
anyway, but yeah, I, I just wanted to comment, you know, on as to what Aaron said. Like there, there is this feeling uh, that seems pretty uh, ubiquitous here, at least in white America, that, you know, white equals safe. And so, you know, if there's a Starbucks, oh, that probably means that, oh, it's, you're fine, there's a Starbucks, you know, or there's like, you know, fancy shops and restaurants and therefore like, it's okay to be here. To be honest, as, you know, when I, before going on tour, like, you know, I have, I looked at our schedule and our route and, you know, the first thing I think of while traveling while black is just, okay, if I'm going to this city, you know, like, what, where am I, where do I really feel safe? And where do I just need to like, you know, keep my head up and make sure I'm checking my surroundings and that kind of thing. And I think a lot of people in our company, because there aren't as many people of color involved, don't have to think about that as much. Um, and I know that it's also very different for women. I know that that is a whole other conversation that I know that I can't even have a say in in any way. But at the same time, you know, when you are a person of color and you're going into some of these neighborhoods or if you're getting an Airbnb in some of these cities that are kind of nicer or whatever that means, then there have absolutely been times where I've been in buildings um, that I'm renting an Airbnb out you know, while we're in these certain cities on tour. And there have been a lot of times where someone has asked me, you know, do you live here? And whether they've seen me, you know, five times or they've, that was the first time they've seen me. Like, are you sure you live here? Like, who are you renting from? And all of this stuff. And that's, that's the kind of thing that I kind of have to prepare for. But Marika, I actually wanted to ask you because you are reporting live from Australia. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, being an Australian and then coming to America, like, how was your experience of, because you do, when you live in New York, you live in Harlem. Yeah, I'm a Harlem girl now. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm curious to know just what your experience has been like, you know, from moving to Australia to Harlem and just living in Harlem. Well, I immigrated over a few years ago. And of course, I'm a very privileged white chick who had no clue of the, you know, I, I knew the basic history of Harlem and and I was th thrilled to live there. And, and we bought an apartment in a beautiful pre-war building and got an opportunity to, to buy into that place. And we were so thrilled because like a lot of artists and creatives or people who have a freelancers you always look for that part of town that you can afford um and and i am mortified now to think that i did i am part of the problem i had no it didn't occur to me to think who i was buying my apartment from what the building history might be what the you know what the air what the ramifications of people like me moving into that part of the world is and you know, up until very recently, I would have heard the word gentrification and thought, yeah, that means juice bars come in and that's kind of great for the neighborhood, isn't it? And it's been a, a great learning curve to realize, as I'm sure so many people are hopefully now, that gentrification is not usually a positive thing and um, and that there needs to be a lot more sensitivity and awareness and education from, from people like me. Would you label yourself as a gentrifier? I guess I am. I guess, yeah. If as a white person um, wishing to live in a community that is predominantly black or of color, is it limiting yourself and is it limiting our society to say like, oh, well, I shouldn't be here because I'm a white person, you know, and uh, I would say the same for, you know, 
for a black person seeking to live in a white community, in a white suburb. Like, we shouldn't feel that we are not allowed to live in these places. The question is, what do we do once we're there? Um, somebody might have a different opinion uh, to that. I would love to hear any opinion to help. Like, what is the answer to that? Like, how do we come into community? Because I, I love my neighborhood. I love I love all the small businesses there. I feel very engaged, but I am aware that not everyone would feel that way about me buying into that building, would they? And and so, how? What is the answer to that? How do we? How do we um, contribute to community with sensitivity? I think that there's a lot there. There's a lot to be said about all this. I mean, there, there's a kind of reducto ad absurdum anti gentrification where we end up in this like extreme segregation. Um, there, there was an, an Onion parody from a year or two ago about like couple moves into all white neighborhood to make sure they don't gentrify any other place. And like, it, if you personalize it too much, you're, you're just going to kind of reinforce um, the pre-existing condition. So that, I think that's one thing. Another thing is this question of, is it good? Is it bad? The thing that's good and bad here, or the, the thing that's bad here is that the housing costs go up tremendously, right? And that's because housing is a commodity uh, under capitalism that is traded in order to make more money. If you take that away, if you, if you find ways to decommodify housing, there's a lot more flexibility in terms of you know, people being able to move and not have such a direct impact on their neighbor's ability to, to live there as well. Uh, and when we talk about you know, safety and when we talk about juice bars or whatever else, like people want nice things in their neighborhoods. Uh, if it just meant the juice bar, I think a lot of people would be would be fine with it, um, especially given that like a lot of the people displaced by gentrification have cultures that have a lot of juice in them. Like it's not like juice is this thing that only uh, rich white people like. So the the thing is the ability to get the kind of you know community that you want to live in without having that thing suddenly being translated into rising housing costs, which then is translated into displacement. That's the mechanism, that's the problem that needs to be stopped. And so, you know, are you a gentrifier? Are you not a gentrifier? Worth, worth thinking about, but much more important is what, you, what do you do afterward, which I think is what Isaac was saying about, you know, well, you're, you're here now, right? So to me, that has much more to do with organizing with your neighbors to make sure that nobody is displaced than it does, you know, overthinking the dynamics of what do I as one person moving to one place mean for this bigger picture? Well, Sam, that's a really good question that I wanted to kind of pose to you is that what, on the other side of that, people that are in a kind of a limbo or in a possibility of being uh, removed or displaced out of a community, what recourse does a person have if they're being pressured by a landlord to move out um, are there are there things that they can do? Are, are there other places they can get help on how to kind of fight that displacement? Yeah, and and Montreux might have more thoughts on this too. One, it's crazy to say this, but the answer entirely depends on where you live, because most of the the answer to that is going to be city by city and state by state, because we don't really have a strong set of federal protections um, around anti eviction, around anti displacement. Um, and so if you live in New York City, you know, you, you might have a right to a tenant lawyer, depending on where you live and how much money you make. Uh, if you make with cert below a certain threshold, you can get access to what we call the right to counsel. Um, you have certain rights as a tenant that you wouldn't have if you live just 
a little bit uh, further north in some of the suburbs um, or, or in other parts of the country. Uh, you might be rent stabilized, which gives you additional protections. But all of this is sort of conditional. What we should have is a, a universal right to housing um, that protects everybody everywhere. But instead we have this kind of piecemeal city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood thing. Um, but ultimately, you, you're going to need to organize with your neighbors. You're going to have to knock on doors and build a community of solidarity that will fight along with you because it's very hard to stay in place when your landlord wants to kick you out if you're just sort of one isolated individual. Montreux, do you want to add anything? No, no, I'm in total agreement with you. The, the, there is a haphazard, you know, a kind of structure in, in you know, uh, to defend people that are facing these situations. I'm pretty familiar with the one here in New York, what I, in New York City, what I will say is that almost everywhere that I've been on this earth, there are people willing to stand up with you. And there are people that are already raising hell and creating trouble, troublemakers. And, and so I think that it's a matter of, of, of finding who those people are of understanding what are uh, the important issues in those communities because sometimes housing is always an issue but but there are uh, communities like here in the south bronx for example that the immigration issue is a big one so so find find those uh, activists meet with your neighbors and and you're gonna find um, the the emotional and and eventually you're gonna find the the political support uh, that you need um and and so it's it's a matter of of really coming with respect i i think also that uh, as as sam was saying like <laughs> like listen here in the south bronx as isaac probably knows there are a bunch of juice bars and juice places juice joints and these are owned by Central American people, people from Mexico. When you go to, to Mexico City, to Ciudad Mexico, you're going to see that there. And fortunately, we've gotten that transplanted here. Uh, and so Mexicans love Jews as much as white people and as much as I do. And so that's, you know, and, and the same thing with coffee. I'm like... I am Puerto Rican. I'm pretty aristocratic in my coffee taste. And so don't tell me that coffee is coming here to town because what, are you drinking iced coffee? Like, you know, so it's, it's also about not erasing uh, what what already is there. I, I think that the, that the discussion about gentrification and about segregation, it's um, rightly uh, anchored in in those wounds, you know, that, that, that do exist and, and that do kind of perpetuate. But I think it's really important also to underline like the assets that community ha communities have, uh, the, the wealth that communities possess, um, you know, maybe they're not, we are not like financially wealthy, but there are other wealth and uh, resources that we have, and we need to identify those because that's it's an asymmetrical fight. And so developers uh, have friends because they have money, and and activists have friends because uh, we're hipper and cooler and you know and, and handsomer and you know prettier. So so I I think that you use whatever you can grab 
to really uh, push back and and that's that's uh, that's really 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 central because I think that we do know the story of 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 the wounds and the the destruction that these policies have have gotten uh, at times we don't pay enough attention on the fact that we are still here that we're still drinking coffee and brewing beer and and that that makes us uh, strong and and should fill us with with pride about we're still around, you know? That then opens up the discussion about gentrification into how much is race related and how much is a socioeconomic um, divide or imbalance and what is the overlap of those two things? Yes, well, let me tell you something. When I moved here to the South Bronx, I and my wife, we bought this, this row house and we were, we, were gentrifiers like we we were uh, among the first people that paid three figures for for a building here and our neighbors were like making fun of us you know because you're a fool like how much and and so i think that that uh, shows at least my, in my personal experience that yes race is involved it's obvious but it's it's not the whole story. You you can be you can be Puerto Rican in a Puerto Rican neighborhood, and so there are other things like my educational level, uh, the the privilege that I had or my family had of having certain savings, you know. And so you need to just um, I I I don't like you know. It's like I I hate when people feel guilty and and so it's guilt that moves them, and but that's what happened with me. So if it, it was that guilt that I felt that I knew that I was a gentrifier here, um, even if non-white, I could pass as, as a non-gentrifier, that, that really propelled me to do something um, and, and to leverage the little privilege that I had to, you know, to, to put it in the, in the service of other people that are not as privileged um, as, as I am. And so I, I think that people should understand the racial aspects to it but they that doesn't ex exhaust the, the explanations or the motivations to act you know mantra i'm really glad that you said that you know it it's not it you, it's not just you know white people i think especially as a black person i immediately i think before we were even going to have this conversation today i automatically would just assume you know that like every gentrifier was someone who's white because if you're you know moving a group of people out and in the in the neighborhoods that i know that have been gentrified in some cases that is what has happened where mostly white people come in to move uh you know i'm thinking of like the south end in boston uh, i lived in boston for six and a half years so i'm very familiar with the neighborhoods there and you know, when I think of like the South End, which is this new, you know, like up and coming like gayborhood, even, you know, of course I've gone out in the South End. And of course I've, you know, been to a lot of, you know, like the queer bars there and I've loved it. But then when I realized that it used to be a different type of neighborhood where my people were mostly there, I all of a sudden have this guilt of like, am I a part of the problem? Am I you know, is this some, am I contributing to this? So I'm, I'm glad that you talked about, you know, how gentrifiers aren't always just white and it's, it can truly be um, an array of people. 
Hey, honorary Newfoundlanders, thank you for tuning in to part one of episode four of Conversations from Away. Now, this episode was a little bit longer than we anticipated, but that's okay because part two is coming your way very shortly. So a, par- a portion of our ad revenue for this episode uh, is going to the South Bronx Unite as well as the Community Service Society of New York. Um, please tune in to our next episode and we'll see you then. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 